0: Well, good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. turns out that Luke 12 is uh, fairly lengthy. It's 48 or 49 verses, and so we have three smaller excerpts from the 12th chapter of Luke um, for this morning. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll see that uh, Luke chapter 12 spans uh, pages 108, 9, and 10. And most of our reading, at least, is, in, is on page 109. I'd like to read verses 13 to 15, 32 to 34, and then the last half of verse 48. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now verses uh, 32, 33, and 34. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for, your, for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no more moth dis- destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then the second half of verse 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, once again, we stand in this place of need. We need to hear from you. We need your spirit to enliven us. We need your spirit to give us wisdom and grace and mercy and compassion and love and discernment. In short, we need you. And so now, as Pastor Yuri comes to share your word with us, we pray, Lord, that you'd give us open ears and open hearts, open minds, not just to any old thing, but to you, your voice, your word your truth, your life, that we might be yours forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Pastor Mark. Giving to the local church is the most concrete way to pursue the generosity and humility that Jesus demands but it's no guarantee of success. That's the central truth of today's message. A hundred years ago, no one would have batted an eyelash at that sentence, but I'm quite sure that it's a controversial statement today, so that's why I'm giving it to you right away. And I'll leave it on the screens for you to write down and consider carefully, and we'll come back to it a few times this morning. I don't know about you, but when I read the Gospels, Jesus always seems to do and to say the last thing I would expect. Take this story we find in chapter 12 of Luke's Gospel. This is a chaotic scene. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, you'll see that Jesus is at the peak of his popularity. Luke tells us that so many thousands had gathered that they were trampling each other, hurting each other. And why had they gathered like this? Well, Luke doesn't say. He doesn't say that they were keen to hear Jesus teach. He doesn't even say that they wanted to see a miracle. He certainly doesn't say that they understood who Jesus was. What Luke does tell us is that he had just provoked the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to oppose him fiercely. These were the people who, according to any human strategy, would have been his natural allies. Well, whatever the reason the people had gathered, it was an ugly scene. There was pushing. There was shoving. There was a frenzy. There was a swarm. And yet, even in this circumstance, Jesus still tried to teach the small number of people in the crowd who were actually his disciples, the people who actually took him seriously. Now, we have to assume that he was shouting to be heard. It was such pandemonium that even the leader of Jesus' followers, Peter, had to ask him who exactly he was talking to, the crowd or, or us? Because people from the crowd started to call things out to Jesus. Now what Luke records for us is a fairly simple request. Jesus! Jesus! Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell my brother to give me my fair share. Now... It would have been easy for Jesus to play to the crowd and just get them on his side. He could have just stated the obvious and upheld the cause of justice. To agree publicly that it is good and right to divide things fairly seems like a no brainer. But Jesus doesn't do that at all. Instead, he turns on the one who called out, the one who made what seems like a reasonable demand. He turns on the man who thinks he's been cheated by his brother. Here was a perfect opportunity for Jesus to keep hammering away at the rich and the powerful. Instead, he takes on the mob. He speaks not just to his followers, not just to the ultra religious folks around who were who were seeking to trip him up, but to everyone, from the poorest of the poor, to the richest of the rich, from the ones at the center to the ones at the fringes, from the hangers-on to those who were hanging off his every word. Why did he do this? Why did he turn on this man who was just asking for some justice about his inheritance? Because Jesus knew that money is never really about the money. That's the nature of money. On its own, money is inherently worthless. It's a token. It's a marker for things that have real value. Even the man's request demonstrates this. He was not looking for money exactly. He was looking for what was coming to him. He was looking for justice, at least in his own mind he was. Money is not really about the money All of us know this, too. It's how we manage to convince ourselves that money is not really the thing that we treasure in our hearts, that greed is not something that I personally have to worry about. I don't care about the money we say to ourselves and others. It's just that dot, 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 fill in the blank. Well, in the course of preparing for this sermon, just as I did last week when I was speaking on the topic of time, I surveyed the whole Bible this week to remind myself of what it has to say about money and, more specifically, about giving. And I paid special attention to the words of Jesus, and I I hunted through all four Gospels and I took extensive notes on what Jesus had to say about it. In preparing for this sermon, I also looked at a number of studies that summarize giving trends in Canada over the past few decades. And finally, over the past couple of months, I've been looking back through Bethesda's annual reports for the last 30 years, making a spreadsheet that compared giving with average attendance. Well, I'm sure that the bad news about that is not really news to anyone. The total amount that we're receiving today is less than it was 30 years ago, and that downward trend corresponded with a drop in attendance. Now, of course, that drop in attendance and in the total dollars that were donated has affected Bethesda's ministry in all kinds of ways, but that's not really what's interesting to me. The really interesting thing to me was what happened when I divided the total amount that people gave by the number of people who were attending Bethesda. Now, as you can see, there's a lot of fluctuation, but the encouraging thing for me as a pastor is that even when you adjust for inflation, the trend in individual giving went upwards. In other words, on average, people over the years have been giving slightly more every month than they used to. This runs contrary to the larger Canadian trends where individual giving has mostly gone down. So Bethesda, you have been bucking the trend. Congratulations. That pleases my heart and I think the heart of God. But after I thought about this for a while, it made some sense. We have relatively fixed costs and we have fewer people to cover them. So, it's kind of like if you're renting a house with a few people and one of your roommates moves out. Everyone who is left is going to have to pick up some of the slack. But the really exciting thing to me as your pastor is how this average increase in giving demonstrates your commitment to this people, to this place, to this ministry over three decades, and of course, far beyond that. Of course, these calculations that I've made don't reflect Bethesda's total financial picture, but I didn't really mean for them to. They don't also tell me if there are a small number of individuals who are giving a lot more while others are giving the same or even less than they used to. I don't have access to that information, nor do I want it. But in preparation for a sermon sermon on giving, what I wanted to see were some solid numbers. I wanted to know what the actual trend lines for those who attend Bethesda Church have been over the years. At the same time, while Bethesda's individual giving numbers are better than the trends we see in the general population, the Bible calls us to giving that is of an entirely different order. The generosity of Christians to their churches should blow all other giving to all other organizations by all other people out of the water. And that's not only because our cause is the most worthy or because the needs we meet are the greatest. Our cause is the most worthy and the needs of the people we meet, we serve are the greatest. But the God we serve owns the universe. God doesn't need our money. And if God doesn't need our money, this must mean that meeting needs is not the primary reason that God has called us to give. Christians are called to selfless generosity for entirely different reasons. But why are we supposed to give to the church? I heard Jesus talking about, in Luke 12, about giving to the poor. Why are we supposed to give to the church? Well, I'll get to that. But for now, I'm simply going to reinforce what I said at the beginning of today's sermon that giving to the local church is the most concrete way to pursue the generosity and humility that Jesus demands, but it's no guarantee of success. As I studied the scriptures this week, I was forced to reconsider what I thought I knew about giving. I realized that what I've been taught in the churches I attended was not quite right. Over the past few decades in the evangelical world, partly out of compassion, partly out of a desire to combat legalism, and partly, frankly, as a reaction against embarrassing scandals, there has been a strong reluctance to talk about giving and about tithing in particular. Now, traditionally, if you're not familiar with the term, traditionally, tithing means giving one-tenth of your income to your church. Now, in my experience, hardly any pastors outside of the false teachers of the prosperity gospel talk about tithing with any regularity. Instead, we hear about sacrificial giving, that is, if we hear about preaching about giving at all. And while that's a good thought, it's not a clear target. And without a clear proportion as a target, we all tend to err on the side that's a little bit more comfortable of sacrifice. In my study, I discovered that whatever anyone may tell you, proportional giving is very much a biblical principle. Now, in the past, the way that tithing has been taught has often been overly simplistic. It pays no attention to the context of the biblical passages that talk about it, and it often applied those passages in misinformed and selfish, frankly, selfish ways. And the way that tithing has been practiced has often been legalistic, paying no attention to the point of tithing, which was not only to make it possible for certain people to devote themselves more completely to serving the Lord— it was also to alleviate the suffering of the poor. And also an occasion for everyone, men, women, and children, all the servants and all God's ministers to celebrate together. You'll sometimes hear people say that Jesus abolished tithing, but that's certainly not obvious from reading the Gospels. To me, it seems more like Jesus and the New Testament authors took tithing for granted. That is, tithing was something that everyone did, and it was so obvious that they didn't need to say much about it at all, let alone emphasize it. In fact, when Jesus does mention the tithe, that was just before Luke 12 and Luke eleven forty-two. he says, woe to you, Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of other garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Jesus is emphasizing, of course, that justice and the love of God are more important than the tithe, and he's taking the Pharisees to task for neglecting them. But even as he makes that point, he still endorses the tithe in passing. Jesus agreed that giving a tenth is good and right. The problem for Jesus was not that tithing demands too much of people. It's that it's not enough. There was something more that the Pharisees were missing, something that they did not understand about the meaning of being generous, about why giving is so important. And no one else could see it. Only Jesus could. Only Jesus knew that the reason that they were so fastidious about the tithe was that they were hiding something, hiding their deepest, darkest secrets, the things that they could not admit even to themselves. Their pride, their lack of love, their desire to be right, to be in control. These religious leaders went far out of their way to keep the whole law. It seemed preposterous to suggest that they were missing the point of it, that they were neglecting justice. They worshipped God more devoutly than anyone else. How could it be that they did not truly love God? Because to love God wholeheartedly would have cost them far more dearly than any tithe ever could. It would have cost them everything. And this is exactly why Jesus said the kinds of hair-raising things that he did about money. Money is the token that takes the place of the things that really matter to us. We all have such a hard time believing that we have an attachment to money. But, it, that's because, but because it stands in for so many other things, in reality, we are all under its enchantment to some degree. Jesus sought to break the hold that money has over us, which is why he told the mob in Luke 12 to, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Instead of using that moment to stand up for someone's superficial notion of justice, it was why he warned of the deceitfulness of wealth. It was why he said, Blessed are the poor, and remarked that it is nearly impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It was why he told one of those rich men to sell his possessions and give to the poor. It was why he praised the widow who dropped her last penny into the temple treasury and the prostitute who anointed his feet with expensive perfume despite the waste. It was why he said that anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. It was why he considered doing the will of God to be his food and the wages of God's workers to be the harvest of souls. It was why he challenged one of his penniless disciples to buy bread for thousands of people, all the while knowing that he would be the one providing the meal. It was why he shocked another group of people by offering his own flesh as real food and his own blood as real drink. It was why he insisted that the one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It was why he commanded his disciples, commanded us to love each other as he loved. That is, by laying down our lives, by giving up what we want, what we treasure, for our friends, and we can do that because He said that we are friends, no longer servants, but family. Jesus said shocking things about money, about our needs, in other words, about our loves about our livelihoods. He said these shocking things to shake us out of our selfishness, out of our self-sufficiency, out of our self-interest. But as his experience with the Pharisees showed, merely being generous carries its own risks. He knew how easy it is to use generosity as cover for the sins that are hardest to root out. He intended for us to relinquish the passing things that we treasure in order to find our lasting treasure in him. And giving to the church you attend, to the local expression of his body, is the most concrete way to pursue not only the generosity but also the humility That he demands. When we give to our church, we're not just being generous, we're working at becoming humble. We're demonstrating our trust in the Lord precisely because our church is local, precisely because his body is here, and that's where we are in our bodies. We're humbled precisely because we know these people. We know their gifts. We know their foibles. We know the ways they inspire us and the ways that they challenge us. We're humbled because we know that to get anything done, we have to work together. We know that careers and status don't have the same meaning within these walls that they do elsewhere. Giving to the local church forces us to love one another in the selfless way that Jesus commands. Giving to the local church means that we're committed to being reminded over and over again of the gospel that kills our pride, that fills us with gratitude, that enables us to love selflessly. Giving to the local church is the most concrete way to pursue the generosity and humility that Jesus demands. But it's no guarantee of success. We all know that some, like the Pharisees, will remain unaffected by their giving, will still give only to try and demonstrate to themselves if not to other people, how spiritual they are while neglecting the most important things. But it is, nevertheless, what God commands. It is to the church, to the little flock, as Jesus said in Luke 12, that the Father has been pleased to give the kingdom. So that as we give to the church, we are providing purses for ourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. The primary purpose of giving to the Lord, as I said before, and contrary to what most people believe and practice, was never to meet needs. The primary purpose of giving to the church is to let go of, of what we have been given to draw nearer to God. In generosity. That we may draw nearer to one another in humility. Now you may have noticed that I've been equating giving to the church with giving to the Lord. But if the church truly is the body of Christ, then giving to the church is giving The Lord. And such and as such, it is an act of worship, not an act of charity. Giving to the church is giving to the Lord, and as such, it is an act of worship, not an act of charity. The tithe, for instance, was holy. To the Lord, to be offered and enjoyed at the place God chose, that is, in the tabernacle or in the temple, so that we would learn to revere the Lord always. In a similar way, I think that it's entirely appropriate for the giving of our offerings to become once again an important part of our services of worship, a moment of particular focus and reverence. And this is something that our finance committee has also suggested. This morning, though, we're not going to pass the offering plate. Instead, we're going to do something that will hopefully prompt you to uh, go home and pray and consider with your families how God is asking you to give to Bethesda in the coming weeks and months. Because the bottom line for us is, of course, well, how much should I give? In all honesty, this is something that's entirely between you and God. And it is something that may change throughout your life depending on your circumstances, depending on your heart, depending on what God is teaching you at any given moment. The most important thing is to give joyfully and thankfully in full knowledge of his grace. The most important thing to avoid is to think like the Pharisees that giving a certain amount or a certain percentage will make you right before God and not giving that percentage will make you wrong before God necessarily. Jesus called this approach seeking to justify yourself and it's the complete opposite of the gospel. But still tithing is not a bad baseline to use. It's a biblical principle And giving a tenth is what most Christians were strongly encouraged to do for a very long time. On the other hand, since one of the original uses of the tithe was to provide for the needs of the poor, there is no biblical expectation that people who earn a very low income should tithe. There is no biblical expectation for people who earn a very low income to tithe. So if tithing would put you in dire financial straits, please don't do it. But many of us could afford to tithe, but we simply never considered it it seriously. And so at the moment, we probably all have our money committed elsewhere. So it may be that you can't tithe yet, but you could think about it for the future. It's worth praying about it and seeking the Lord and searching the scriptures. And it's also worth considering that both the Bible and the history of the people of God in later times teach us that many of God's people have considered a tenth of their wealth to be far less than what they ought to give. Remember the story of Zacchaeus who gives a half of all that he owns, or the story in, at the beginning of Acts about what the Christians were doing. Many of God's people have considered a tenth of their wealth to, be far, wealth to be far less than what they ought to give, since in their humility they've not only recognized what God has done for them on the cross— But they've also found themselves in a position to be able to give the material blessings that God has lavished on them back to him. They've taken very seriously the words of Jesus from our reading earlier. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So this is where the slip of paper that I attached to your bulletin comes in, and I'd invite you to open it now. If you don't have one, there's, it's up, uh, I've put a copy of it up on the, um, on the screens, and as I said, there are more in the office for those who uh, are n- not able to find one. If you look at the writing on the paper at the top, you'll see that it's in the form of a prayer to God. It says, Lord, I recognize that by giving to my church, I'm giving to you. And that this is an act of worship, not an act of charity. As I give, please teach me to be both generous and humble. You are my heart's treasure, Joyfully and in gratitude for all that you are and all that you've done for me, I will give. And then there's a series of uh, sections and options. And I'd like you to pray and consider this as we sing our last song, and then afterward as Ari continues to play for a minute or so before the benediction. As I said, you'll see that there are two sections to choose from. The top section is for adults. And the bottom is for people of all ages, recognizing that not everyone can commit to giving a percentage or maybe even to do the math for the percentage. Now, for some of you, this will be an easy exercise because you already know how much you've planned to give, and that's fine. So if you're able to complete the prayer and pledge this morning, I would encourage you to fold it and place it in the offering plate at the back of the sanctuary this morning. And I'd ask you not please not to sign your name to it. This is something that is between you and God. Now, I also recognize that this may be something that you need to think and pray about longer. If that's you, I would encourage you to take the slip of paper home, bring it back next week, and place it in the offering when we do pass the offering plates next Sunday. And again, please don't sign your name to it. And as I said, there are extra copies of this paper on the back table because I would also encourage everyone to take as many copies home with you as you need so that you can encourage your kids and your grandkids to pray for themselves and to consider what God wants them to give him as an act of worship, whether it's just a nickel out of their allowance or something more, so that they too can start on this journey toward the generosity and humility that Jesus demands let's pray together Lord God this message is uncommon and runs counter to our feelings counter to our culture counter to our anxieties so it's hard to hear It's hard to preach, hard for me to consider when I realized on Friday that I was allowing myself out of the, the, uh, off the hook because I know all the answers to why Jesus didn't actually mean what he was saying. But of course, Lord, he did mean what he was saying. He meant for us to be shaken. He meant for us to continually have to re-examine our hearts to see whether he is our heart's treasure or whether money or other things that money stands in for are actually what we treasure. So, Lord God, I pray that um, your people would be tender-hearted and to consider what you have said this morning and to understand that I stand here not as someone who is offering his opinion but as someone who is searching the scriptures and faithfully applying and preaching what the Bible says. Lord God, I pray that you would be with us over these next few minutes as we consider what it is you're asking us to do in the coming weeks and months. Something that's so tangible, such a concrete expression of worship. And we ask that you would help us to pursue true generosity and true humility in this way. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. As benediction, I'm going to read a little bit more of Luke chapter 12. Then Jesus said to his disciples, after he had spoken to the crowd, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat and drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with our offerings this morning, our offerings from our voices, our offerings of time, and our offerings in every other way conceivable. We thank you that you have given so much to us, and we pray that you would continue to transform us into likeness of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.